This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome back, every Bendy Body. This is the Bendy Bodies podcast, and I'm your host and founder, Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD. This is going to be a great episode, so be sure to stick around until the very end so you don't miss any of our special hypermobility hacks. As always, this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for personalized medical advice. Wow. Y'all had so many great questions about brain fog, so we are very fortunate to have back with us today Dr. Eileen Ruhoy. You may remember Dr. Ruhoy from way back in our first season, episode 13, Healing the Brain Holistically. So definitely check out that conversation as well, which will be linked in the show notes. Dr. Ruhoy is a board-certified neurologist and earned her PhD in environmental toxicology at the University of Nevada working directly with the EPA on her dissertation topic of pharmaceutical residues in the water. Dr. Ruhoy also completed a fellowship in integrative medicine with Dr. Andrew Weil at the University of Arizona. Her interests include connective tissue disorders such as EDS, autoimmune neurological disorders, neuromuscular disorders, intracranial vascular and pressure disorders, infection-associated neurological conditions such as long COVID, MECSF and PANS PANDAS, traumatic and inflammatory brain injury, mitochondrial disease, neurodegeneration and exposure illness. In addition to her private practice in Seattle, Dr. Ruhoy also serves as the medical director of the Chiari EDS Center at Mount Sinai South and is currently a co-editor of the special issue of Neurology and Connective Tissue for Frontiers in Neurology. Dr. Ruhoy, hello and welcome back to Bendy Bodies. Hello, I'm so happy to be here again. Okay, Dr. Ruhoy, we're going to dig in to brain fog. It's such an interesting term and definitely means different things to different people. How would you define brain fog? Brain fog is, is a patient's experience. And usually when I sort of ask further questions regarding their experience of brain fog, you hear a lot of, uh, they feel like they're thinking through a fog, through a sludge, that their thinking is much slower than they're used to. They have a hard time learning new ideas, storing new memories, recalling words. Um, they feel their processing time is much slower. They have difficult time focusing and, and keeping attention on a, on a single object, specifically with reading a book, for example. I, you know, they'll mm. say that they have to read a paragraph over and over again, and they still don't comprehend necessarily what they're reading. They definitely have a difficult time watching any television show or keeping track of a conversation. And oftentimes, if they, if when I'm speaking with them, if they have a partner that's available for the appointment, um, I'll ask the partner questions and the partner will agree that, that oftentimes that they, they have to repeat things that were already said to, to the patient um, previously because the patient doesn't remember the conversation or doesn't remember the, the task that was discussed. So um, there's a lot of just difficulty in retaining and recalling information. Um, and that is often what patients experience is brain fog. Cognitively, interestingly, you know, I do a lot of cognitive testing. They actually mm -hmm. score fairly okay. Um, but mm. I think also what's important to point out is that some of these patients say that they were very high functioning previously and that they believe that they would have scored even higher um, prior to the onset of brain fog. Um, but 
cognitively, they, they appear to be intact in terms of, of, of frank cognition. Mm-hmm. So it's not true cognitive impairment. So there definitely seems to be just sort of an inflammatory component of trying to um, basically process information and, and retain that information. Okay. And we definitely, when you said the word inflammatory, we're definitely going to have to get uh, into that into more detail um, as we as we go on. But I want to make sure that we kind of hit some of the ba- basics uh, first. So who would you say is most at risk of uh, brain fog or this type of cognitive dysfunction? It definitely seems to be prevalent in those with fatiguing illnesses that are thought mm-hmm. to be post-infectious or para-infectious. Obviously, long COVID is, you know, the one that is much more on our radar these days, but also MECFS has had a lot of concern with brain fog um, and cognitive difficulties. As I said, I don't, rec- I don't call it impairment per se, but definitely mm-hmm. cognitive difficulties. And I, I should also add that along with the brain fog, there's uh, a change of mood and sometimes changes mm. of behavior. And so, so, and, and that's another thing that I ask the partners about, or, or sometimes other family members, such as parents or, 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 or children. Um, there are mood disorders that are associated with things like dysthymia or anhedonia, where things that used to bring the patient joy no longer brings them joy. Um, and, it, and, and it seems to go hand in hand with the brain fog kind of experience. Um, so I think that's another component of it. And there does seem to be an inflammatory component to it because the history often, if not always, includes an infectious disease. Um, sometimes it includes recurrent uh, physical traumas like TBIs, you know, concussions, or even whiplash. Um, so I think that there, that's why I, I think of it as sort of this neuroinflammatory response. Mm-hmm. And if you think about classic kind of um, post-infectious encephalopathies, as we call them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the pediatric world, of course, there's pandas and pans. You know, this is well known to be post-infectious and where the child was neurotypical on a Tuesday and then woke up on a Wednesday um, with all kinds of symptoms and change of moods and behaviors. It's very much, which is why it's called neuropsychiatric um, in, the, in the name itself, because there are behavioral changes. And we see this in the adults too, though not as obvious, right? Because I think that Adults have more ways of trying to manage and curtail some behaviors and, and, and mood manifestations than children are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, mm-hmm. They have much more of an emotional ability that they just can't control. So I think adults are better at controlling it, but there's still a clear change of mood, affect, for sure, um, energy state, um, and sometimes, like I said, behaviors. So I, so it, it very much reminds me of, of these more classic and I should say better understood, though still controversial, of course, um, neuroinflammatory disorders that that affect the brain. That's that's really interesting because would you say that there are some people that would have the same infection as another person and they're and they're impacted differently? Because obviously, you know, throughout life, we all have various different exposures and and to toxins and things like that and infections and but we don't all end up with these problems. A hundred percent. I mean, so one of the things that we're trying to understand better is who's at risk and why, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, lots of people have infected. I mean, we're exposed to viruses every day. Some are so ubiquitous. I mean, they're in our environment. You can argue that by the time we're all of a certain age, we've all been exposed to 
more than one virus. So why do some people develop these chronic diseases? And, and we don't really have the answer to that. There's likely a genetic variant. We haven't identified it. I'm not sure that there's a ton of robust research going on to try to stratify risk in this regard. There should be. Um, because then it might lead to perhaps more aggressive treatment at the onset of the mm -hmm. infection itself. I mean, just mm -hmm. even learning that MS has some of its origins in infection, you know, makes me think about, so what would we do then if and when, uh, you know, someone develops mononucleosis at age 19, right? So that's mm -hmm. a very common part of patient's history, um, not only with MS, um, but also with ME-CFS. Um, mm -hmm. So, so what what do what do we do then? And I, I I'm not saying I have an answer. I don't. Um, we don't in general aggressively treat and you know, and again defining aggressive treatment for a viral infection. You know I don't know what that would mean either. I think it's you know it's it's defined differently by different doctors and um, different circles. And I'm not an infectious disease, so I sort of don't want to pretend like I'm an expert right. in how I would treat it. But I wonder how it would change how we would approach you know, a viral infection of any sort, frankly, if we knew of the risk that is delayed, that is mm -hmm. a potential risk for years later after that infection, I think it would change how we approach it. And maybe even how we approach just overall health in the interim, right? So uh, taking the example of EBV and mononucleosis, you know, it could be 10, 20 years before you develop an illness that might have been related to that to that infection. So maybe in those intervening years, there's a change of how we treat our health, of what we do, how we minimize exposures, how we treat exposures. You know, there are other exposures that we're concerned about. Our environment just continues to get dirtier and dirtier. And it's just, you know, it's terrifying, frankly. So, so maybe yeah. there are some intervening things that we can do in the meantime. But I think most importantly, we have to understand who really is at risk and why. Mm -hmm. Right, right, exactly. Because there's so many young people that are being robbed of their entire productive adulthood. I mean, mm -hmm. you and I both have taken care of so many young people that it's just, it's just tragic. It so, is tragic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So, So how can patients figure out what might be contributing to their uh, cognitive problems? I think... Uh, again, in the history is sort of an answer, right? So what have you been exposed to? Um, what has your health been like up until that point when you started to experience the brain fog? Uh, usually uh, you, you, there are, there's a whole history behind it. And there are oftentimes um, points along the way where you recognize that that something is happening within the brain. And uh, and then it just progressively gets worse where you can no longer deny it. I mean, I think we all have days where we're like, we're like, oh, I'm just, I'm feeling, you know, foggy today and I'm not thinking all that well. I'm not thinking all that clearly. Um, but then it seems to clear up the next day. And maybe you had a bad night's sleep or maybe you ate some really inflammatory foods or uh, maybe you had a particularly stressful day, you know? So there are lots of mm -hmm. reasons why we can all be feeling like we're not, like our brain's not working well. I mean, I hear people around me say that all the time, right? My brain's not working well today. I need my coffee. Um, right, right. But in, 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 uh, in chronic disease, you know, they have those days and it could clear up, but those, the bad days as they call them gets progressively more in free, more frequent. And then to mm -hmm. a point where now that's sort of their norm and then it just gets progressively worse. So I think that there are ways to identify early on when things were happening. So, so I, so at some point though, again, you know, patients, they, at some point they get 
they get progressively worse, where now they mm-hmm. are, brain fog is their norm. And so in their mm-hmm. history, they have to recognize, you know, what exposures that they may have had. And that's where patients will go on sort of different paths and they'll, you know, test for mold or they'll have a complete infectious workup for viruses and certain bacterium and tick-borne illnesses. Um, and, 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 you know, and that a lot of doctors will do that complete comprehensive infectious kind of workup. And they'll also get workups for different uh, inflammatory markers. And, and it might even include imaging, uh, for example, a PET scan, which might show altered metabolism or volumetric studies, which might show mast cell activation. It could, there could be uh, a workup with regards to immune dysregulation. So you can see how your immune response is working and whether it's been it's been dampened or not, or whether there's been autoimmunity that's starting to develop, which is often a case with progressive and chronic brain fog. And we find autoantibodies. I mean, you know, so autoimmune encephalopathy is a real entity. We see it in neurology all the time. There are well-described and well-documented um, autoantibodies that are associated with sometimes what's called a limbic encephalitis, often called autoimmune encephalitis or autoimmune encephalopathy. Um, and they have classic type of neurologic symptoms. And I think the, the complex part of this is that these patients with brain fog and fatiguing illnesses don't necessarily present with the classic uh, neurological symptoms of autoimmune encephalopathies of these well-known and well-described autoantibodies, um, which are, you know, things such as seizures, more classic type mm. seizures, um, also just altered mental status. Uh, and as I, as I said, they, they, they generally perform okay on cognitive studies. So it does make matters complicated for when they seek care. And so it, 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 the onus really becomes up, upon the patient of trying to identify, back to your question, trying to identify what has contributed to their brain fog. And it is most often uh, uh, some infectious exposure or some other environmental contaminant or toxicant exposure, of which there are many, because as I said, our environment is dirty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, but the question is, what do you do about it? Right? So right, that's sort right. of where we always go back to, what do you do about it? So right. I treat it as an autoimmune encephalopathy is what I do. I mean, so mm. in fact, a lot of the symptoms that patients will describe to me, while they're not classic seizure, like not generalized tonic-clonic, not focal seizure per se, you know, there are sort of more atypical types of seizure disorders that are well-known, things like audiogenic seizures, for example. Um, seizures can actually fool you. Sometimes they're, they're changes of mood. Sometimes they're, and especially in children, you can just have vomiting seizures. So they mm. don't have to look like they look likely in the movies, right? They're not always <laughs> right. this loss of consciousness with, you know, rhythmic shaking or, you know, or writhing of the body. Um, mm-hmm. They can fool you sometimes. So, um, but so I just sort of treat it as an autoimmune encephalopathy, basically. And, and we do get great response. And I think it's because of the immune response to whatever that exposure is, because that's what the immune system does, right? So the innate and the adaptive immune system will work together at some point. First, it starts, of course, with the innate, which is the first responder, non-selective, fast acting. But eventually, the adaptive immune system starts to join in. And you have this immune response that if it is a chronic exposure, um, there's eventually some form of immune dysregulation. And so I just treat it as, you know, this is an immune response, an immune response that does not yet know that it can just stop and 
calm down and, and not create further inflammation. And, uh, and, and I work, work along those lines. And so, and, it, and there is improvement for sure. There definitely is improvement when we approach it as an immune perspective. And then I do that, you know, I work with obviously lots of my patients are seeing lots of other doctors as well. And so usually other doctors are treating the infectious component or the exposure mm-hmm. component. Um, and so it's, it's, it's basically hand in hand. I, I don't, I don't do a lot of antibi- antimicrobials just because it's not in my scope. Um, right. but I've, I've le- certainly learned a lot over the years, you know, so, um, <laughs> and I, I'm, I definitely feel much more well-versed in it. Um, but mm-hmm. I still don't do a lot of it, but again, my patients are usually seeing doctors who do. So, um, so right. it's usually a sort of a hand in hand kind of treatment plan. And again, there is improvement. Is it a cure? I don't, I haven't seen it be a cure for it. There's doesn't seem to be a ma- magic bullet just yet, but that is along the lines of autoimmune encephalopathy anyway. So mm-hmm. we don't have a cure for it. You know, a lot of these treatments that we do, even in classic conventional neurology, are long term and usually incomplete or suboptimal. Um, mm-hmm. So again, it, it's not it's it's not out of the realm of what we know about neurological disorders, especially those of an autoimmune component. And, and I mean, I'm take really... MS, right? It's an autoimmune. Sorry, but, I didn't interrupt you. But... No, no, that's okay. Then <laughs> yeah, we take MS, right? I mean, it's a lifetime. We don't have a cure for that either. We have good drugs right. that seem to help slow it down, improve symptoms, um, but we don't have a cure for it either. So again, the, the idea that we don't yet know a cure is sort of the way neurology, I mean, we always say in neurology, you know, we have a lot of diagnoses, we have very few treatments. So, um, but I think that we're learning more and more as we go, as we go on and, and um, hopefully eventually we'll have cures for all these diseases. Oh, definitely. And, and I think, you know, with EDS, for example, Ehlers, the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, people will say, you know, well, why bother diagnosing them? Because there is no cure. And it's like, well, we don't have a cure for most things. So if we were to use that line, then obviously we would, we would all have a lot less work to do, I think. Um, so I'm curious to go back to what you said about volumetrics and mast cell activation syndrome, if you could elaborate on that. So... I do a lot of volumetric studies, which are known as neuroquant, which is basically an MRI, but with specific software that measures the volume of different regions of the brain and compares mm-hmm. it to normative values of regions of that brain based on, you know, gender, age, and so on. Um, I, what I find with a lot of muscle activation is that, you know, the concern, of course, always is that there's going to be a lower volume, which, you know, can be consistent with atrophy, um, which always scares patients. But uh, what I have found in uh, when there's significant chronic mast cell activation is that the volume is larger. Um, mm-hmm. And it's presumably, and while obviously I've never ordered a brain biopsy on these patients <laughs> to sort of confirm this, um, mm-hmm. the, I think the presumption is that because there's so much inflammation, which of course brings in inflammatory cells and some fluid. And so it just makes the volume appear larger on the imaging study so that when the measurements are done by the software, uh, the volume is larger than what the normative values would state it should be. So mm-hmm. um, it seems to be a marker of inflammation. And, and again, I would, you know, brain biopsy studies are obviously not <laughs> viable and uh, I couldn't get it. I won't get an IRB to approve it. So <laughs> <laughs> no, probably um, not anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so, but that is w- what I've seen on patients who have had um, positive labs that suggest, you know, can, and as, as you know, Linda, like there's, you know, it's very hard to get positive labs with mass. Yes, it is. Yes. So in the few patients where I've gotten positive labs on, they seem to have this higher than normal volume on a, a volumetric study. So. 
Interesting. And could yeah. you explain the relationship between uh, cognitive dysfunction and mast cell activation syndrome? There seems to be a definite correlation between mm. mast cell activity, which are, you know, mast cells are present in the brain as they're present in every part of our body. And interestingly, the brain has, you know, unique histamine receptors uh, with H3, um, so as well as H1, H2, but H3 is, you know, not found as ubiquitously as H1, H2 are. And of course, all the antihistamines that we generally recommend are H1, H2 blockers. Mm -hmm. So um, we don't have a whole lot to counteract H3, though there's one or two medications that are indicated for narcolepsy that are out, but hard to get approved for patients because they're just brand name. They haven't, they're not generic yet. Mm -hmm. um, so and then histamine is a neurotransmitter, right? So there are histaminergic kinds of functions of the brain. I mean, so histamine, of course, keeps you awake. It's, uh, as, which is why antihistamines put you to sleep. Um, <laughs> um, and so, uh, we do know that with, with chronic mast cell activation, and it's not only the histamine, of course, and, you know, there's lots of mediators that come out of the mast cells. And so it's not just right. about the histamine. In fact, one of, things that I regularly preach about, any my patients know this, is that the focus on just histamine about mast cell activation is sort of, in my opinion, a little, you know, um, foolish. <laughs> there right. are so many different mediators and some, and some of these other mediators can actually do a lot more damage. Speaking of connective tissue and EDS patients, some of those mediators right. are enzymes that love to break down collagen, right? So right. I think that there's other mediators that are just as important, if not more important in some clinical circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, than histamine. But regardless, the brain has mast cells and the brain has, you know, unique histamine receptors and, and, and mast cell activation releases histamine, which is a neurotransmitter and releases other mediators, which are inflammatory. And so we think it contributes to the inability for the brain to basically, you know, have these, the transmission that it needs for, you know, for memories, for words, for processing, um, for focus and attention. And it just sort of sends the brain into a state of like, it doesn't really know how to function appropriately as, as, it, as it should. And so patients sort of sense that lack of mental clarity and that feeling like they're thinking through this fog uh, and mm -hmm. which is why they call it a brain fog. Mm -hmm. And, and another cause of uh, cognitive dysfunction in, in our world of the, what do you want to call it, the triad or the septad or the pentad, right? We have these conditions that tend to travel together that we know are causing a lot of uh, suffering in a lot of people. And another component of that is dysautonomia. And in some cases, specifically POTS, right? Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, the cognitive dys dysfunction with dysautonomia or specifically POTS, uh, how, what's the mechanism there? low blood flow. So it, what's interesting is that in, in Mount Sinai, we've been doing transcranial Dopplers when we do the uh, invasive cervical traction. And mm -hmm. what we're finding is that the majority of patients have low cerebral blood flow, which makes sense with POTS and dysautonomia with the hypovolemic component of it. Um, there just is lack of blood, or I should say not lack of blood flow, but slow blood flow. And so mm -hmm. the blood doesn't get to the parenchyma, the tissue of the brain as optimally and as efficiently as it should. And when it has low velocity, it doesn't have as much force for perfusion. So the blood might actually deliver the oxygen at some point, albeit at a lower 
speed, um, mm -hmm. but then it needs force to actually perfuse into the brain tissue. And so it doesn't do that as efficiently. It does it, obviously, you know, I, you know, this, but this is sort of a, a, a subclinical global hypoxic kind of effect. And that really causes a lot of difficulty in thinking processes, especially when you think about how important oxygen. Well, I mean, that goes without saying everyone knows how important oxygen is. We all need oxygen, but the mitochondria need oxygen, right? Oxidative phosphorylation, as the name implies, you know, needs oxygen. So, um, so just the low flow and the low perfusion rate, um, seems to impair the ability of, of the neuronal cells to really efficiently and effectively and optimally do their function perform their function. So, um, and I, so that definitely contributes to the brain fog kind of experience. And it seems like that could be related to, to the high extraction ratio of the brain, right? So the, mm -hmm. with every pass of oxygen, the brain is going to extract much more um, oxygen than muscle or right. fat or, you know, the kidneys Absolutely. are up there, right? The kidneys and the heart are also up there, but the brain is number one. Absolutely. I, that's what I remember from my anesthesia training. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, the brain is the most metabolically active organ, right? Right. So. <laughs> right. Okay. The brain, it, the brain is everything. It is. It is. Absolutely. <laughs> and and you, you mentioned uh, a little bit about uh, craniocervical instability, but I definitely want to talk about, you know, upper cervical instability and some of the other things that I'm sure you see at the EDS Chiari mm -hmm. Center in New York. Um, can you explain to us, you know, what that is and how that relates to cognitive problems? Cranial cervical instability is when there's uh, an unstable C0, C1, C2 complex, the C0 being the skull and then C1, C2 being, of course, the first two cervical vertebrae of the cervical spine. And so, and it's held together by several different ligaments. Um, and when there is a connective tissue compromise, as there is with EDS patients, uh, that complex becomes very unstable. And there's a couple of consequences of that. Um, one is what we refer to as cervical medullary syndrome, which is compression of the lower end of the brainstem. And, it, you know, cervical medullary syndrome is not unique to CCI. Uh, if you had a big tumor sitting there, you would still have compression of the brainstem. So you would still technically have cervical medullary syndrome. Um, but it, it is a very common consequence of CCI. And so when you have compression of the lower end of the brainstem, you can also potentially have compression of the vessels that feed the brain blood and drain the brain of blood as well as CSF compartments. So where CSF flows. So when you compress all of that, then you alter the dynamics. Um, and then the compression of the lower end of the brainstem can cause some significant symptoms in the sense of uh, the lower end of the brainstem has uh, not only the, you know, the lower cranial nerves, you know, like 9, 10, 11, and 12, um, but also nuclei that are part of the autonomic nervous system, nuclei that are part of the neuroendocrine axis, uh, you know, because they speak to the hypothalamus, so the hypothalamus, pituitary, thyroid, adrenal glands, so, the, so you can find abnormalities along those lines. Um, and then with compression of flow, you can have all, you can not only have brain fog, um, but you can also have elevated intracranial pressure. And mm -hmm. in fact, what we see is, you know, so when you have an unstable C0, C1, C2 complex, that C1 can move around a bit, and the C1 has a bony protrusion called a tubercle. And so sometimes that, because it moves, uh, that tubercle can sit on the internal jugular vein, which sits, which basically abuts this complex. And when you compress that jugular vein, you are basically causing compression of outflow. And so there's congestion. And I always liken it to a highway. So if the exit is, is closed off, like everything backs up, right? 
out mm-hmm. here in Seattle, it happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it takes forever to get anywhere. But um, <laughs> so you have congestion and everything just sort of backs up. And so, um, and that can cause elevated intracranial pressure. And it's because, you know, a, there's an exchange between the fluid compartments of the brain. So the arterial system, the venous system, the CSF compartments, there's exchange of these fluid compartments. And actually that's how the glymphatic system works. Um, so when you have con- you know, congestion of one, it can affect the others. And so you have elevated intracranial pressure and it's not the classic, what's always been called, of course, IIH, idiopathic mm-hmm. intracranial hypertension. But I, you know, I don't like that name because I don't think it's idiopathic any mm-hmm. longer. Um, the classic IH and the classic teaching of it, of course, was that was the fear of, you know, of optic nerve swelling and loss of right. vision. And that right. was always the dreaded fear because if you were to lose your vision from IIH, it was lost forever. And so it was always like, well, is there papal edema? And if right. so, we have to, we have to intervene or basically urgently. Um, but this, this is the kind of elevated intracranial pressure, at least, um, certainly early on and for a, a long period of time that doesn't have great vision involvement, um, but it does have the other classic symptoms of IH, which, you know, are debilitating for patients, you know, things like severe headaches or, you know, pulsatile tinnitus, um, feeling dizzy and lightheaded, um, even, you know, syncope. So, uh, and they, they can even have, you know, and because it's related to CCI, they ha- there's an overlap of symptoms that are are because of the CCI. So even things like, uh, you know, difficulty swallowing or uh, facial pain, atypical facial pain, um, mm-hmm. intraoral pain, certainly neck pain, uh, you know, and then there's a change of position can sometimes flare symptoms or not. Sometimes the change of position can take the or lighten the compression on the jugular vein or improve the cranial cervical instability because in a certain position, it's in better alignment. Um, so the, it's, it becomes very complex for patients to try to manage. And the more definitive treatment, of course, is surgical intervention, uh, which lots of people are, you know, rightfully so afraid of. Um, so it's, it's something that we work very closely with patients about to try to do, you know, a, a comprehensive evaluation to understand what their symptoms are about. And perhaps there's other potential causes. We try a lot of medical management first, for sure, um, before we sort of decide that maybe surgery really is the best option for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's so important because there's obviously complications that can happen or you know mm-hmm. suboptimal outcomes. So, but sometimes people need to go that route, right? So, but it's yeah, good to absolutely. try the the lower hanging fruit first. Um, so, what about the opposite? If someone has like a CSF leak, for example, um, mm-hmm. could that also impair their cognitive function? It definitely can. So it lowers. Obviously, you have intracranial hypotension now, and that you know so. So it can, it can come from two separate reasons, uh, in, in, in my experience with my patients, at least with the EDS population. So the dura is very dense connective tissue. And sometimes with EDS patients, that connective tissue, of course, is, you know, vulnerable and at risk. And you can have a, a spontaneous tear. Sometimes it's after mm-hmm. a lumbar puncture or some mm-hmm. other intrathecal intervention. Um, but also if you have chronic long-standing elevated intracranial pressure, you could easily spring a leak. And again, secondarily, it's from just sort of the vulnerability of that dura. Um, mm-hmm. and so, and so, and that's how a, a dura leak or CSF leak can happen as well. So you can first have high pressure and then spring a leak and then have low pressure. And so, yeah, so low pressure, of course, brings the pressure down and then you can get if again, if it's somewhat chronic, um, and you know that, and when I say chronic, that 
that duration of time is different from patient to patient. You know, people mm -hmm. always like to ask me like, well, how long? Right, <laughs> um, and right. it really is different patient to patient, to be honest. But, you know, in a long enough period of time of being at low intracranial pressure, you can develop what we refer to as brain sagging or cranial settling where things just sort of sag down. Mm -hmm. And that definitely contributes to brain fog and cognitive dysfunction. It also, you know, puts you at more of a risk of low lying cerebellar tonsils, which EDS mm -hmm. patients are already at risk of, um, mm -hmm. as well as just a, a true Chiari. Um, and then it all, you know, again, in the brain sagging, which can compress flow again of CSF, of compressed flow of the vessels. Um, so there, are, you know, obviously there are large vessels, but then there are moderate sized vessels, medium sized vessels, small vessels, tiny vessels, you know, that feed the crevices of the brain. So although the smaller vessels are, are very vulnerable, and so they can basically collapse under the weight of just even brain sagging, but also under the weight of inflammation, frankly. And, mm. um, I think that, and that contributes to back to the global subclinical hypoxic state. Um, it definitely mm -hmm. contributes to just, you know, inefficient oxygen delivery and perfusion. And that alone can contribute to brain fog. You know, it's interesting because there is something called vascular dementia. And, um, and while I've already stated that I don't think, at least at this moment in time, that brain fog could, because cognitively they seem to be you know, decently intact. And I don't think that this is a dementia syndrome in, in the making. Um, but mm -hmm. there is something called vascular dementia. And on imaging, we see evidence of just widespread, what we refer to as small vessel disease, you know, where these small vessels mm -hmm. are just basically have collapsed and are no longer delivering the blood to these, you know, to small pieces of the brain parenchyma. Um, and, you know, that happens in older people over a lifetime of basically inflammation, which sort of goes to what we're saying, right? We're just all exposed to, to I, was about, I was about to say a bad word. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker. I can't help myself. We're exposed to stuff every, <laughs> crud every I'm, day. I'm totally with you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're, I mean, our, you know, our brains are inflamed, our bodies are inflamed. And so mm -hmm. these small vessels really bear the, bear the burden and, uh, and, mm -hmm. and collapse under the weight of that. And then they don't do their job, which is like I said, you know, they're supposed to be feeding like the tiny pieces of our tissues. So, um, so they don't do that. And so, you know, I, I think, so what I say, and while I say that I, you know, these patients at least are performing okay on cognitive tests, you know, it's not that there isn't a big worry in the back of my head or a big fear that if we don't somehow correct this, that, you know, we're up for something down the line that's going to be a lot harder to treat and a lot more, a lot more debilitating, though that's, you know, hard to say because these patients obviously are, are quite debilitated and their quality of life is, is really been upended. So. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking about the uh, low uh, intracranial pressure, I was thinking about people with Tarlov cysts. I had this one patient mm -hmm. who her entire spine was full of Tarlov cysts. Like it was unbelievable. And that would cause base or that could cause basically a, uh, a shunting or mm -hmm. wouldn't that also potentially cause low yeah. intracranial pressure? It absolutely does. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, they are filled with CSF fluid mm -hmm. and the bigger that they, they get, the more fluid they're removing out of the spinal canal. I mean, you know, your system does make more fluid, but again, the, you know, and then the bigger the tall of cysts get, of course, that they can cause nerve compression, mm -hmm. right? Cause they're perineural sheaths. So, um, so it becomes problematic and Tarlov cysts are definitely a source of lowering intracranial pressure. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because as you know, like, you know, 
we learned that tarlow cysts were just like incidental findings. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you get, to, you get to a point in medicine where you just start to second guess everything you thought you knew. Right. right? And, right. uh, it's, a, right. it's, to be honest, and it's, it's you know, it's, it's always nice to talk to other doctors. <laughs> it, it's it's <laughs> a, an uncomfortable place to be in sometimes, right? Because oh yeah, you feel like yes. did I did I know anything at some point? <laughs> like, right, right. You know, like what? It's yeah, it's 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 not a comfortable place to be, but in some respects, it's almost like it's liberating because mm-hmm. now you're sort of free to think about it in a different from a different perspective and see it differently. And you're and you you know you when you see as enough patients and you sort of see clinically the effect of it. Like, it's almost like you get these epiphanies every day. And I, and people have heard me say this and I, you know, I say this on my own podcast all the time. I learn from patients every single day. I really do. Right. I learn right. from them every day. And I love to apply like the knowledge that I have as a neurologist to what they're experiencing. And, mm-hmm. you know, you do that enough, you start to actually put the puzzle pieces together, right? And you start to right. see it for what it is. And, and that is a, that is a, is a rewarding feeling. So, you know, but it, it's true that at some point you just start to think like, what, you know, did I know anything at some point? Like what, what was I taught? Like I have to second guess everything. Right, right. I, I sometimes think that I started out, I went through very traditional, you know, medical training, and I, I thought I knew certain things. And, you know, I wouldn't say that my mind was closed, but, you know, you, you think that it's more encapsulated. Yeah, and oh, then and- sometimes I feel like my mind has become so open that everything's falling out. <laughs> oh, my God, that's actually a perfect way of putting it. It's so true, though, right? Like at some point yeah. I think like, okay, I got to step back because now I'm just right. feeling crazy. <laughs> right, right. Well, because you start reading, I mean, you know, you could sp- and you have a PhD, which I'm like, oh my God, I wish I'd gotten a PhD. You're so brilliant and you have such a great combination of, you know, you're, you're uh, getting your PhD in you know, toxicology and working <laughs> with the EPA. And I mean, that's, who knew that was going to be so incredibly relevant? Well, I guess you probably did, but the universe had a plan. I always say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's just amazing because you're right. So I had a Tarlov cyst and back in 2009, when they first discovered it, that's exactly what I was told. Oh, it's an incidental finding. And I kept looking at my films and seeing like this big marble and thinking, is it really? Yeah, exactly. Because, because <laughs> it seems like maybe it's not, you know, and eventually mm-hmm. had surgery and did much better. So, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it, it is, I think it is challenging sometimes kind of walking that line between, you know, uh, you could fall into all these rabbit holes, right? And like, end Definitely. up spending so much time. And I learn from my patients every day too. And, and they're amazing. And, and fortunately, usually pretty patient with, uh, with that understanding that, you know, I'm happy to research things and, and, you know, learn along with them and help them in any way that I can. So that's what I love about the podcast is I learn from, you know, brilliant people like you, and then I can apply that in my own clinical practice. So it's very helpful. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I agree with you. I mean, I love working with like colleagues like yourself. I mean, you know, we've known each other for a long time now and um, I've always learned a lot from you and, and I, I really appreciate you and I appreciate your work. I've said this to you so many times, <laughs> but I want your listeners to know how much I appreciate yeah. you because you really do some really tremendous work for, especially for the EDS population. Like it's incredible. Well, and they're I, thankful I, for you for sure. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, as, as you know, cause you have your own podcast and doing all of these other things that we do. Um, it, it takes up a lot of time and, but yeah. it's, it's when you get that appreciation, it makes it, it makes it all worth it. Right. Oh, for if sure. You, when you feel like you're making a meaningful difference. 
that's I agree. where you go. Yeah. I love yeah. what I do. I really yeah. do. I love yeah. what I do. I wish I wish I knew more every single day mm-hmm. so that I can help more. Right. Um, but I feel like as each week goes by, I've learned even if it's just one new thing, right. then I know that I'm gonna keep going. So yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And and I'm thinking as we're talking, I think we need to break this up into two conversations because we're really diving more deeply into the causes of cognitive dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And you think and cognitive problems, I guess I should say, so people don't think that that does mean impairment by definition. Um, but maybe we should have the conversation about treatment as a separate conversation. Because I feel like- I would love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel Absolutely, like that might because be- there, Yeah. I mean, and I, I didn't go deep enough into like the immune component to it. Maybe I did, but um, you know, the the glial cells and their their role, and which sort of leads me into the treatment plans that I come up with for patients, mm-hmm. which is really about the immune response. Mm-hmm. And so we should definitely have a second conversation about that because there are things that can be done. Yeah, and you know, I, I and it's not all about medication sometimes, and sometimes it is about you know s- there are some supplements that I, I have found to be helpful, but there's also some other non pharmacologic modalities that I think are helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are. You know, there are lots of things that can be done. So I would love to have that conversation. For sure. Yeah. I think that sounds like a good plan because, you know, we haven't even talked yet about food and sleep and other environmental oh, factors gosh, that, yeah. that contribute, right? So, and of course, I'm sure there must be medications that also contribute to mm-hmm. suboptimal cognitive function. So, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that and then we'll, we'll come back to, to talk about uh, different treatment strategies and, and, uh, and everything. So, and I would love to hear more about the immune aspects. Cause I feel like that's something that very few people really appreciate. And yeah. you're such a perfect person to talk to about <laughs> that. So, so what should we know about uh, nutri- nutrients and cognitive function? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, that's a, a small really, question, right? That's a, that's a really big question. Nutrition is super critical for cognition. Uh, food as medicine is uh, is like a passion of mine, and I'm constantly preaching it, especially to my daughter. If you ask her, <laughs> um, yep. You know, I always and I explain to patients that the foods you choose can either be anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory. Right? It's really mm-hmm. that simple. It's 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 that it's it's that black and white. And um, the and you know, I don't I don't preach what kind of foods people should eat because I know that there's a lot of dialogue out there, especially on the internet about what the appropriate diet is. I'm vegan, full transparency. Uh, I Mm. don't insist my patients become (laughs) vegan. Um, Many of my patients will say they just feel better when they eat animal meat. And I'm not, I don't argue with them because they know their bodies better than I do. And if that's what they believe and feel, then that's what I believe and feel for them. Um, but mm-hmm. regardless, I think everybody's body responds either at, in a, an inflammatory manner or in an anti-inflammatory manner based on what you consume. And so whatever feels good to that body, people should eat. But having said that, I think there are a few rules that apply to everyone, which is that we should be avoiding processed foods. And, and by the way, none of this is, is rocket science. Like everyone knows this. Mm-hmm. So, But avoiding processed foods, avoiding sugar, and that means like 
processed sugar and, you know, simple sugars. In fact, the brain prefers the glucose molecule, but not in the form of donuts and cookies, right? more in the form of some complex carbohydrates, because our body really does have very intricate biochemical mechanisms to break down complex carbohydrates to basically deliver the glucose molecule to the brain and other organ systems as it wants to see it. So complex carbohydrates are actually super important. And in fact, I think grains have gotten a really bad rap in some circles, and I never really mm. understood why. Um, the body really does appreciate it. It, it needs it, frankly. Uh, and also dairy, you know, so I, dairy is, is very inflammatory. And I have a lot of patients who tell me they can't live without cheese. So <laughs> I don't have a great response to that. Um, I think that <laughs> I think dairy is very inflammatory. There is a ton of research to support that. And um, so it's those simple rules that I just ask my patients to follow, at least for a period of time, and just sort of see how their bodies feel after that. Um, mm -hmm. And many of them will do. And I, you know, and it's like, it's baby steps. And so then I just say, mm -hmm. you know, increase your consumption of vegetables. You know, we do know that the wide variety of vegetables and fruits have all the phytonutrients that the body needs, the body and the brain frankly, that mm -hmm. it needs. You can find them in the plant world. And so, you know, I just, so then I just, it's baby steps. So, you know, increase the number of dark leafy greens that you're eating, right? So mm -hmm. it's, I just work with patients and I, it's like a journey and, you know, and it's, so it's not only that I treat them medically as a neurologist, but I'm also trying to sort of improve the, the things that they do on a daily basis in the, in their lives that can only help them not hurt them. You know, and that's how I explain it. Like, so by increasing how much kale you consume won't hurt you, <laughs> it might help you. And I, I actually, right. I, I've been known to give a recipe or two because I've come up with very palatable ways of consuming these kinds of foods that some people are not used to eating. So, mm -hmm. you know, I work with them and it's, it's really a part of what it's a labor of love. It's part of what I like to do. But also to be fair, I don't necessarily do it at the first appointment because a lot of my patients have just been, are really sick and have been suffering for a really long time. And the last thing they want to hear me say is like, eat more salad. Um, right. But there, there does come a point along the way of my journey with a patient where I say, okay, we need to start really like improving your nutrition, improving your sleep, improve, improving how you move, improving your stress. You know, so I start working with them on more lifestyle factors somewhere along, along, along that that path. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, nutrition is just, like I said, it's just, it's, it's a hobby of mine. I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I know we talked about that also in episode 13. So people can definitely go listen to that right. one as well. So, right. so we're definitely going to have a follow-up conversation. I'm so excited about that. And so uh, we're going to, we're going to defer a lot of the questions that people submitted online for the treatment, because I think that's where a lot of those uh, yeah. questions will fall in. So before we wrap up, um, I would love for you to tell people where you can they can find you online. And I want people who are watching this on YouTube to be sure to hit the thumbs up if you're finding this video helpful so other people can find it, because this is such important information from Dr. Ruhoy, and I want everyone I want everyone to know what she's sharing today. It's so, so important. So can you let us know where people can find you online? And I want people to look forward to the next part of this conversation. So um, I'm not great at social media, but I do have some social media accounts. I have an Instagram account, Eileen Ruhoy, MD, PhD. I have a Twitter account, at Ruhoy, MD. And then I I have a TikTok account, believe it or not, um, thanks to my daughter. And um, it's Eileen Ruhoy, MD, PhD. Yeah. So it's 
that's the name I use for, and that's all I have really online. Um, I don't have any fancy websites or anything like that. <laughs> well, that's okay because we will have okay. links to all of that in the show notes. So Great. people will be able to find that. So um, you've been listening to the Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD podcast. And your guest today was the amazing Dr. Aileen Ruhoy. And we will be having her back to talk about treatment of cognitive problems. And Dr. Ruhoy, thank you so, so much for coming on the Bendy Bodies podcast today. Your knowledge is just vast. And I am so grateful to you for your incredible generosity. Thank you, Linda. It was really, really nice to be here. I appreciate it. And I look forward to the next conversation because treatment is super important. So, and a fun conversation. Yes, that will be a, a super fun one. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bendy Bodies with a Hypermobility MD podcast. Visit our new website at bendybodiespodcast.com where you can now view guest profiles and show notes with links to products and journal articles. Leave me a comment, sign up for updates, leave a review or a voicemail, and access the podcast on your favorite player all directly from our website. You may hear your voicemail in a future episode where we answer your question or dive into your gracious feedback. Follow us on Instagram at Bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories. So be a buddy and engage our community by using the hashtag Bendy buddy. That's hashtag B-E-N-D-Y-B-U-D-D-Y. You can also find me, Dr. Linda Bluestein, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn at HypermobilityMD. Visit HypermobilityMD.com for information about medical services and one-on-one -on -one coaching. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. Do not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you have. Opinions shared are that of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views of the host or any particular organization. Sponsorship of the podcast does not necessarily mean an endorsement. Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.